You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steve Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. Today, we're going to be continuing our series, Leadership During Crisis. And my guest is Dr. Francis Collins. He's the outgoing director of the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Collins, a very warm welcome back to Washington Post Live. Well, thank you. Nice to be with you, Francis Sellers. I think uh, we previously reflected on the similarities of our names <laughs> since my middle name is Sellers. I'm really glad to have a chance to talk to you today. Though we, I think, are unrelated. Um, as far as we know. Anyway, I'd love... <laughs> I'm looking forward to talking about your 12-year, three-president tenure at the helm of NIH. But first, some headlines. I want to talk to you about Omicron. It's spreading like wildfire across the country with cases doubling, I think, in every two to four days. And New York reported 18,000 new cases. What is your concern going into the holidays? I am concerned because this is a variant, Omicron, that has more than 50 mutations compared to the original virus from Wuhan. And it makes it apparently very contagious with this doubling time that you just mentioned, two to four days uh, to increase the numbers by a factor of two. We saw that in South Africa. We saw that in the UK. Now we're seeing it in the US. That's much faster than Delta, which we thought was already really fast. So this is going to be potentially the dominant viral strain in the United States in just two or three weeks at the rate it's going. So the potential for a twindemic, Delta staying around, Omicron coming in, and then I guess we should add flu and RSV, those normal um, respiratory problems we see every winter. What, again, is your concern about these two things surging together? Well, you're right to mention Delta, because even though we have a lot of focus right now on the new kid, Omicron, uh, the old kid, Delta, is still causing a great deal of trouble in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, we are seeing more than 100,000 new cases every day in the U.S., and most of those are Delta. And we're seeing hospitalizations going up again. And saddest of all, we're seeing deaths every day, over 1,000 in the United States. And those are mostly Delta, and those are mostly unvaccinated people, which is to say those were potentially preventable. Omicron is a bit of a mystery, though. While we know it's incredibly contagious, there is some suggestion that maybe it's not as severe in terms of its likelihood of putting you in the hospital or the ICU. But let's be clear, that data is kind of early. It's based on other countries like South Africa that are rather different than we are in terms of the age of their population. So we need to be very vigilant here and doing everything we can to block the spread of this latest arrival on the scene, Omicron. And I guess we're going to come to what we can do about that, because I really want to talk about vaccines and especially boosters. Well, exactly. You spoke in the introduction about the importance of boosters. And I've been hearing from sources, a man just uh, emailed me today saying he'd had you know, a J&J &J in March and then a Moderna booster in October. He has no idea um, how much protection he has. So help us think through that. How, how should we be defining fully vaccinated these days? Well, it's a tricky term now, isn't it? Because it's being used in some instances in terms of whether you've lived up to a mandate uh, by your employer. I'm the director of the NIH, at least for another 48 hours. And the employees here are required to be fully vaccinated. But in that definition, it means that you got two jabs of Pfizer or two jabs of Moderna or one of J&J. &J. But now in terms of protecting yourself, especially against uh, Omicron, but also against Delta, 
it's clear that a booster really revs up your system and gives you that added layer of protection. So you want to get that booster and you're not really in as safe a position as you could be if you haven't done that. So people listening to this, if it's been more than six months uh, since you got your Moderna or Pfizer initial series, or more than two months since you got your J&J, &J, sign up right now uh, to get a booster. It will put you in a much better position as the holidays are coming very soon. And there's vaccines available all over the place. Uh, just go to vaccines.gov or go to your cell phone and put in 438829. That's 438829. Then punch in your zip code and it will tell you what are the nearest places to you that have vaccines ready to go without a need for appointment. So for those people who haven't yet got boosters, are you recommending that they change their social behavior in coming weeks? Well, first of all, if they haven't got boosters, get them. But even yeah. so, I think we have to be careful not to let our guard down, especially with Omicron being so contagious. I know people are tired of these mitigation strategies. I know people are tired of being told you should be wearing a mask. I know they're tired of physical distancing recommendations, but those actually work. And the virus is not tired of us. So yes, and especially during the holidays, people are going to want to get together. If you're indoors with other people, you should be wearing a mask, especially if the vaccination status of some of those folks is not known. And if you're around people who are unvaccinated, ideally you ought to meet them outside and not inside. And certainly you ought to try to keep up that six foot distance as awkward as it is, as much as we all want to hug each other at the holidays, <laughs> this is a moment where that virus likes to take advantage of our nature and it has done so very effectively. And if we're going to get through this season, which is threatening to be uh, pretty dicey here, we're all going to have to double down on those common sense measures, plus get your booster. So a lot of companies, including the one I work from, are proposing um, return to work dates next year and have been pushing them off. And mine again has, has delayed ours and is trying to accommodate people's individual needs. But what is your recommendation for getting back to work, for recreating the environments we all miss of conviviality and shared ideas that are so important for creative work? Well, we have missed those things and they are important. I run a scientific organization. Some of the Things I remember that were most inspiring as a scientist were those conversations you had in the hallway with another person uh, who just happened to be working in a similar area and all of a sudden you realized, oh, we put these things together, we could actually make a big advance happen. That's harder to do when we're all at home looking at Hollywood squares on our Zoom calls. And I do miss that. And I do think ultimately, especially for situations like science where people being next to each other is kind of electrifying. We should try to get back there, but we have to do so safely. At NIH, uh, we unfortunately have also delayed our plans. We thought people were going to come back to the workplace back in November, and then we thought, oh, we're not ready for that because of Delta. And then we thought we'd have people come back in January, and we've just delayed that again because it's unclear what the status will be. When people do come back though, of course, you wanna be really careful that you've set up the appropriate ways uh, to maintain physical distancing and masking uh, indoors because we're not gonna be through this for many months to come. So I'd like to ask you about another piece of news that I was covering yesterday, and that was the CDC's decision to prefer, or put preferential uh, recommendation on the mRNA vaccines over the J&J &J vaccine. 
And the question I have for you is about populations who've been hard to reach and who've depended largely on what was originally a one-shot dose. Do you worry about uh, the homeless, um, people in prisons, and also the international impact that this decision could have? Yes, I do. Uh, J&J did have this advantage of being a single dose, plus it didn't require a lot of refrigeration, which is not the case for some of the mRNA vaccines. So it seemed like it was ideally suited for hard to reach places and certainly for low and middle income countries. And let me be clear, it should still have a role there. But if you have in a circumstance where all the other things are lined up to be able to choose, as we are fortunate to be able to do here in the United States, it's pretty clear the mRNA vaccines provide you a higher level of protection. J&J still gives you quite a bit, but the uh, mRNAs are a little better. And there is this rare blood clotting problem, which I think is why CDC was particularly looking at the data yesterday and why they made the recommendation. Now, notice they didn't say don't use J&J. They said, mm -hmm. if you have the opportunity, you should prefer the mRNA vaccine. I understand that. Two of my grandchildren got J&J. And I'm glad they did, and they've now gotten boosted with an mRNA vaccine. So I think they're probably in pretty good shape, like the person you just talked to. So there was a recent report from the Global Health Security Index that placed the United States number one in some ways in terms of biomedical and other things advances, um, but uh, rated it very, very low in terms of confidence in the government, which is so critical to public health. What do you make of that and what do you think we can do about it? You know, that's very troubling and I'm not too surprised. I mean, look around us uh, at everything you see, particularly in social media or just uh, in interactions with family and friends. We have in this country fallen into this divisive kind of set of tribal attitudes. And much of that does seem to reflect in some of those tribes, at least, uh, deep distrust of the government oftentimes whipped up by conspiracies that have no basis in fact, but spread uh, like wildfire through social media. Yeah, we're in trouble, I think, as a society. We seem to have lost in many ways our anchor to truth and to sizing up a claim by whether there's any evidence behind it. And instead, it sort of depends on which tribe we're in, which information we hear and which information we internalize. And oftentimes that information isn't right. And Certainly for me as a scientist, this is deeply troubling. And you've seen it play out, of course, in the way in which with life-saving vaccines, probably some of the best vaccines that have ever been created by mankind and were created in record time, there are 50 million people who are saying no thanks, or maybe just no, because they believe that these are not going to be good for them. And much of that based upon false information. And yes, since you know NIH is part of the government, I'm sure distrust of government spills over onto us. So let me ask you a little more about that. Many of those 50 million are people of faith. You are both a scientist and a man of faith, and you've tried to reach out to religious communities. What successes have you seen? Are you frustrated by the results? What has to happen now? It's hard to tell. I have done uh, outreach in the form of podcasts with people like Pastor Rick Warren, uh, Franklin Graham, uh, Tim Keller, uh, Tom Wright. Uh, a lot of effort being made on the part of leaders in the Christian church uh, to try to convince congregations and pastors who lead them 
that this is not something to be fearful. This is an answer to prayer. That's how I see it. And yet, again, we seem to have a circumstance now where politics has gotten all tangled up uh, with faith traditions. And the politics seems at many times to be more dominant in the way in which it decides people's opinions as opposed to what are the basic foundations of their faith. And that's very troubling as well. This is one thing, even after I step down as NIH director in a couple of days, that I hope to continue to be engaged in, this importance of making sure that people of faith see science as their ally and not as a threat. Science is, in my view, a gift from God, a chance to understand how nature works and to use that to help people. And it seems like for a believer, that ought to be celebrated and embraced, but not at the moment in some instances. I want to ask you about one of the uh, issues that's going <laughs> to um, continue after your tenure, and that's long COVID. A year ago, NIH was fortunate enough to receive, I think, $1.15 billion from Congress to invest in long COVID. What is happening that, with that research? There's some frustration from patient advocates that things are not moving quickly enough. Can you update us? Well, I understand their frustration because this is such a puzzling, mysterious problem and must be, for those who are suffering from it, uh, incredibly difficult day after day, not having answers to what's happened. And this was another big curveball uh, that this virus threw at us that we didn't expect. Something in the neighborhood of 10 or maybe as many as 30% of people who have had acute illness from COVID-19 don't seem to get better completely after a couple of weeks the way you'd think they would. And that includes people who didn't have very severe disease to begin with. We don't know what the basis of that is. <clears throat> is there some virus still lurking in their systems that we haven't been able to detect? Is it an immune system that's gotten knocked off filter and can't seem to reset? Is there a clotting problem? That's what we aim to find out as fast as we can. So we have launched this major project called Recover which is enrolling 40,000 participants. About half of them are people who are acutely ill with COVID and we wanna see which of them end up with long COVID and is there something we could have predicted about that. And the other half are people who already have long COVID and we're trying to study everything we can to understand the mechanism and then institute therapies to help them. I know people are frustrated. I'm frustrated too. I'm pushing the team really hard on this thing. Come on, we need answers, but we need answers that are gonna be trustworthy. The other thing I would say is the more you look at this, the more you're convinced this is not just one simple thing. This may be a bunch of different consequences of this virus affecting the brain. People have this brain fog problem, affecting fatigue, affecting the heart. And we need to understand the heterogeneity of long COVID if we're ever going to sort it out. And that's why we need a big study. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about this issue of speed and science. I know you have. Um put some effort behind a sort of venture capital shark tank approach to science. But talk to me a little bit about the benefits and costs, um, how you can speed up research and why people are now turning more to philanthropy and other sources of funding to move things quickly. Well, when it comes to a severe threat to somebody's health, nobody wants to hear that we're on the slow boat and I don't either. Uh, you want to move as fast as you can. And you've seen that with COVID-19, the dramatic speed with which the vaccines were developed in just 11 months. For our part, uh, we were a big uh, player in that, but also in the diagnostic part of this, where you mentioned our, our shark tank. Basically, we turned NIH into a venture capital organization 
found inventors in small businesses and, and universities and gave them a chance to ramp up what they might have taken five years to do to get it done in a few months. And that's why we have a lot of tests now out on pharmacy shelves and something like 3 million of them being done today because all of those technologies were given a chance to really scale up rapidly. I think there's lots of other places where NIH can do things like that. Now that we've had this experience with COVID-19, that's why this new part of NIH called ARPA-H, the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, has been proposed by the president and is strongly supported uh, by myself and others. And the Congress seems very interested in, in putting money and authorization into this. It would be kind of different than the business as usual because it would be very fast moving, very willing to take risks, very willing to fail on things that are high risk, but fail quickly if you're going to, and to have the kind of opportunity to bring partners together who would never write a grant to NIH, but who might have technologies that we could use. So I think we could do a lot with that in cancer, in diabetes, and rare diseases, just move this process along. What kind of funding are we talking about from Congress? And actually, what kind of time frame are we on for ARPA? Well, the president proposed $6.5 billion for ARPA-H uh, in fiscal year 22, which you may know we are in the middle of, but we don't have the budget yet. As usual, Congress has had trouble making those decisions. Mm -hmm. The House marked it up at $3 billion, and the Senate at $2.4. Those are substantial numbers for a project just getting started. We will hope that when we actually get through the current continuing resolution, uh, which means we don't have a budget until February 18th, that some decision will get made and ARPA-H can get launched. And we're putting all the things in place to make it a rapid launch if we're fortunate enough to get the funding. I'd like to ask you another question about long COVID, if I may. If COVID becomes endemic, if most of us see uh, getting, you know, contracting the illness in our futures, what is the potential public health burden of having long COVID heading into our future? It's a co cause of great concern. Uh, again, we don't really know uh, people who have now had long COVID symptoms, some of them for six, seven months, is this something that will gradually reset itself or do we have to find a way to intervene by some kind of medical intervention uh, to get them back to normal. And then we need to discover what that is. But no, you're totally right. I mean, even if it's only 10% of people who've been infected who end up with long COVID, we just crossed the line in the United States of 50 million infections since this all started. So that might mean there's 5 million people out there who have had some problems with long COVID, some of whom are still suffering today. That's a big public health issue. We have to do everything we can with the best scientists we can possibly pull together to get answers here. And just one more on long COVID. Um, there are these other chronic conditions, ME-CFS, commonly known as chronic procedure syndrome, um, even uh, chronic Lyme, many people who have got symptoms that have not gone away post-infection. Do you see this 1.15 billion as key to unlocking some of the clues to those conditions too? I do. When you look at the symptoms that people are having with long COVID and then compare those to what's been described with chronic fatigue syndrome, or sometimes called myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, MECFS, there's a great deal of similarity. What's different is this time we know what the inciting agent was. It's this virus, <laughs> SARS-CoV-2. 
with people with chronic fatigue syndrome, you often have a history of somebody who was healthy, then gets some sort of a viral illness and doesn't get better. But it's too late by the time they're in trouble to know what set it off. And that's been a big mystery. So my hope would be, and I think there's some reason to think this could really happen, is by figuring it out with long COVID, where we know what starts it, which gives us a big clue and to try to understand it, then we'll be able to extrapolate from that to people with CFS uh, who are just waiting for answers. And I know they're incredibly frustrated too. We are working on that already and have been for a few years, but we haven't got the big answers we need. I want to ask you a big overarching question. And that is that your side, medical research has, has had many, many triumphs um, over the past two years with vaccines and therapeutics. The other side, public health has struggled a lot. Given the fact that you're leaving NIH now and you can look from a sort of uh, bird's eye view on what's going on, how would you rearrange agencies and funding to help us fend off a future pandemic? Well, there's a lot of conversation going on about that right now. We must not let the lessons of COVID-19 be lost because this is not the last pandemic that we're going to face. It's inevitable that a few years from now or you know, a few months from now, some other kind of pathogen, probably a virus, maybe influenza, but there's seven or eight other viral families that are also um, highly um, likely at some point uh, to burst forth. So we need to be prepared for that one as well. The science about how to do that is also something that we can organize even more so by perhaps having a plan to do the first steps in vaccine generation and antiviral drug development, even before we know which one of these is gonna be the next culprit. But the public health system, clearly uh, we have seen, desperately needs uh, to be upgraded in terms of its support. Uh, the state health departments where a lot of the responsibility falls have been underfunded and understaffed for way too long. And that really needs to be figured out. And the CDC, God bless them, struggling with that is dependent on the states for a lot of the data gathering and a lot of the interventions they need to do. And they're also stressed and understaffed and oftentimes still working with technologies that might have been appropriate a decade ago, but now aren't quite up to the task. So yeah, this needs to be a real reset button for the whole system to try to figure out how to be better prepared. Dr. Collins, as you know, we often have reader questions and I have a slightly unusual couple coming up. Um, I talked to your colleague and friend, Dr. Anthony Fauci earlier on this week and asked him um, what he would like to hear from you. And he emphasized to me what enormous contributions you have to give to uh, policy and global health going ahead. So here's my question after that. You said you're going to go back to your lab but are you really going to go back solely to your lab or what other contributions will you continue to make um, after you leave NIH as the, as the head, not leaving NIH altogether, but the helm's the helm? Well, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised that Tony has put that question forward. He's kind of put it forward <laughs> to me. Uh, you know, I need to be careful stepping down as the NIH director and Dr. Larry Tabak stepping up as the acting director, a very capable leader. I don't want there to be any confusion about who's running the place. So if I'm going to get engaged in specific topics, I'll need to make it clear I'm now doing it as a consultant, as an intramural scientist who has a particular uh, point of view or a particular contribution to make. Tony is right, though, that I do have a deep passion for global health. 
And I do think there's a lot of things that are going on there that are relevant to what my own research is going to be in, um, involving. So yes, I suspect I will continue to the extent that I can be useful uh, to take part in some of those discussions about how we could do a better job of uh, building up the capacity of research in low and middle income countries, going from what I've called a donorship to what ought to be ownership, giving those particular institutions and their really wonderful scientists a chance uh, to chart their own future. And that's something I feel pretty passionately about. And we've made a lot of progress in my 12 years, but we're not there yet. Dr. Collins, you said uh, goodbye in a rather unusual way at a farewell event earlier this week. Um, let's take a listen and everybody else can hear how you did it. My dozen years are almost through, but it's been great to work with you. Let's end COVID now. Thank you, HHS. So I reached out to um, folk duo Robin and Linda Williams, who have played with you in your hometown of Stanton, Virginia, and asked them what question they would like to ask you. And here's oh, what they really? Said. <laughs> they said, you'll be off to a new start on Monday. What song will you be singing then? <laughs> oh, my. Okay. Um, hard times come again no more. Uh, they they will know that song, Stephen Foster. We are in hard times, and this is a song of pleading. Can we please find a path forward? I think I'll go there. You don't have your guitar in hand, but can you give us a line or two from it? <laughs> ah, let's see. Well, it's just the last chorus. Oh, hard times come again no more. Thank you, Dr. Collins, very much for your leadership through these hard times over the well, past I didn't two expect, years. I really didn't expect to be asked to sing about it, but <laughs> let me just say, Francis, it's been an absolute privilege uh, to be able to have this opportunity to serve. This is a public service job running the NIH, but it's also incredibly exciting, exhilarating, working with amazing people. I've recruited 22 out of the 27 institute directors that I am now confident are going to run the place in an incredibly visionary way. So I'm not worried about stepping away. With Dr. Tayback as acting director and all those other folks, NIH is in a great And just one last question to squeeze in. What, what, what makes you optimistic looking ahead? Well, I'm optimistic about science finding answers to the problems that we're going to continue to face. We're on a roll. Science is like moving at a pace that I didn't think possible during earlier parts of my career, making discoveries all the time and discoveries that have profound consequences. I mean, look at what we're doing, curing people with stage four cancer with immunotherapy, curing kids with sickle cell disease with gene therapy. So they're now not just better, they're cured. Things like that are just exhilarating to see. That makes me optimistic. And I'm optimistic that despite the terrible divisions in our society right now, uh, that the next generation isn't going to find this very appealing and they're going to figure out how to fix it. Dr. Francis Collins, thank you so much for sharing your faith in science with us today. It's a joy to be with you. And I have had a ball as the uh, director of this institution, which I dearly love. 
that's all we have time for. Many more questions we could have asked, but thank you to Dr. Francis Collins. Happy holidays to everybody else. We'll be back in 2022. And in the meantime, if you want to check in on our programming, please go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Happy holidays and thank you from me, Francis Steve Sellers. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.